had no one to tell them to it's true I was made for you On episode 6 of the stories we tell I sit down with Jency Spradlin I've known Jency for a while we worked on Jackson Equity project together I've known her uh, just through some other work she's done in the community. We live in the same part of town. Agency's one of those people who, I guess I've always known who she was, but I didn't really know much about her personally. And so tonight, uh, Agency and I discuss where she grew up, how she ended up in Jackson, but more than a conversation about her and her story, which is usually how these episodes play out, we really talk about the work that Gency is doing with RAP. Um, RAP is an organization in Jackson that helps men and women who are victims of abuse and in intimate relationships. Uh, it, it helps them find support. Uh, it helps them in some situations find housing. It helps them be able to leave, if they so choose, a relationship that has become abusive and destructive to their personal life. Uh, RAP is an organization in Jackson, which I have known about, but I didn't know a lot about, if that makes sense. Uh, I've seen the acronym. I've been to the Denim and Pearls fundraiser. It's one of those things that you I've always seen in my periphery, those four letters, W-R-A-P, but I didn't really know the value of what they do here in Jackson. And so in this episode, uh, I talk with Jency uh, about some of the people that she has helped she tells us stories of um, men and women who have overcome situations of abuse where they were victims. She also discusses about how traumatic and how difficult it can be to leave a relationship that even the person who is the victim and it knows is probably bad for them. Uh, however, it's never as cut and dry and as easy to leave as it seems from the outside. This is a very worthwhile episode to listen to. And again, we do talk to Jency about who she is as a person because her story is important. But the majority of our conversation is what rap can do for citizens in Jackson who are victims of abuse and how rap can provide support and help for them. So hope you enjoy this episode. I uh, hope you are willing to find out more about rap, to donate to rap, to help support rap as best you can. Uh, as an individual in the community because they do so much good work for other people in our community. So thank you so much for listening and hope you enjoy episode six, the stories we tell with Jency Spradlin. I climbed across the mountain tops, swam all across the ocean blue, across the Usually the way these episodes go, they center around a person and the individual story. And tonight's going to be a little bit different. Like we do want to know about you, Jency, obviously, because mm -hmm. you are important and you are valued as a human. Oh, thank you. But we really want to talk <laughs> about the, the work that that you're doing with rap. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. But first, because I don't even know this, and I don't even know that you... We're from Mississippi until earlier when you said mm -hmm. that's where you grew up. Mm -hmm. So we'll just start there. Okay. What what part of Mississippi? Tupelo, northeast Mississippi, birthplace of, of Elvis. My mom would love you automatically just because you were born there. 
She, she I wasn't a, born in Tupelo, but I we moved there when I was five. Well, really? four, yeah. Okay, where were you born? Bradenton, Florida. Mm, Florida to Mississippi. No, Florida. Oh my. To Durham, North Carolina. My dad was at Duke, um, getting his advanced degree, and then we moved to Memphis. So he worked at the newly opened Baptist East, which, if you were in the eighties um, in Memphis, Greater Memphis area. That was the place to go after church for the cafeteria food. Baptist East? Yes. The hospital? No, yeah. Okay. In Germantown. That's East. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's where you, you looked at me like my well, my, no, ma- I, my, my mathing. I think I was just confused my, that that's where you went yes. to get food. Yeah. Was the hospital. That or Morrison's Cafeteria. I mean, that's where it was at. I love Morrison's Cafeteria. <laughs> the one here in Jackson. That's where we went every Sunday after, <laughs> after church. So, yeah. And then to Tupelo, so... So Tupelo, mm-hmm. um, that's where I graduated high school. So that's where you spent your, for, my formative, your formative, years, my formative years, as they say, yes. in, in Tupelo, Mississippi. Yes. What was that like? How was, how was growing up in Tupelo? So um, I, I don't know if this was an actual phrase, but I, I would say Tupelo felt like it was the Harvard of Mississippi. Harvard. You made that up just now. You just, nobody it said that. So Tupelo is a small town with a very big regional hospital and manufacturing base for uh, furniture manufacturing and Hancock Fabrics was headquartered there. There's a lot of money in Tupelo compared to other parts of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So it was a very affluent community. And one of the things that I really, really, really loved about Tupelo is that there were, there was one private school. It was very small. And the story that I was told is that back when um, integration was occurring, the powers that be in Tupelo, the moneyed people came together and said, we are not leaving public schools. We are keeping our children in public schools and we want our public schools to be the best. And they did. And so that small private school is still very small. And so it was some of the best uh, world-class education um, in that community because there weren't private schools there competing for the students and um, we were the top in football, in choir, in everything you could think of. Tupelo was the top. And when I was in the 11th grade, or before that, the Hancock family, Hancock Fabrics, um, they donated an extremely large piece of land to build what is now Tupelo High School. There was just one high school. Um, and it looks like a college campus. And so our level of education the type of classes, the type of experiences and opportunities that we have were not um, shared by a lot of the rest of the state. So it it really was a great example of the community coming together. There's a great organization, the Community Foundation um, in Tupelo, that has been extremely active. Um, their downtown um, has been transformed. They actually have a new development that Henry Turley who helped mm. develop um, Jackson Walk, put there called Fair Park, that was built well beyond when I left. Um, so they've done a lot for a small community to really improve themselves and to be the bright star of Northeast Mississippi. And they have proven that with the industry and the businesses that are there, plus the hospital who has anchored that community for 
decades and decades and decades. It's similar to West it, Tennessee Healthcare, the Jackson General. It is the hospital that you go to. It almost sounds like what you're describing is is Jackson, but just in an alternate timeline. Right? Are you familiar right. with these parallel yes. universes yes. that run beside each other, but yes. things are just a little... So, like, what you're saying is maybe if we, if Jackson didn't harvest all these private schools in a certain part of the county and have them mm. grow like they did and instead just made a collective decision right. as a community to say, hey, we're going to invest in public education here. Right. Maybe we don't have a charter school. Co- I don't know. So, I know. So- <laughs> that, that, we, we could spend our whole time discussing Man, that. Uh, sometimes in these conversations. I mean, and, and I am not anti-private school. Don't right. get me wrong. Our our son um, started at Jackson Christian School in um, the three-year-old preschool at Campbell Street where we're members, and he stayed there and through the eighth grade till he transferred to Madison mm-hmm. for high school. So I'm definitely not anti-private school, and I'm not saying that the private school systems in Jackson were to the ultimate detriment of the community. I'm just saying that where I grew up, that decision was made and because of that in a small community you had everybody goes to the football games Mm -hmm. on friday nights because we had one high school and so that's very different environment than a community with a bunch of high schools but our stadium was had psls you know my parents owned seats at the sounds like the like a professional it does does nfl team ps i haven't heard that acronym in a long time and for those of the uninformed those are personal seat Seat licenses licenses, right which you have to purchase before you can even purchase the tickets tickets. yes so this is just an extra way to get money yes it is. in some ways it is um so yeah i love these the way these conversations go because (laughs) as you go along you see like oh this just opened up a whole other avenue (laughs) should we take a right turn and probably not like we'll save that for another time because I want to focus on 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 the work that you do yes. at RAP, but even before we get there. So you graduated from Tupelo and you went right. to Lipscomb. Lipscomb. Yep, met my husband there. I was a, um, so since I was eight years old, I was in community theater. And I sang and I did not dance. I'm not a good dancer. But I did that from eight years old through college because I got a scholarship to Lipscomb to do theater. And so I met my husband in my freshman um, freshman year first semester production of the music man and um, we have been together ever since the fall of 1994 and we've been married for 26 years so that's yep that's where we met and continue to do theater and music there at school and then I have not returned to the stage since I graduated uh, Lipscomb in 1997 but during the time that um, my husband's a couple of years older than I am, um, he was getting his master's in English at uh, MTSU. And then he um, chose to go to Auburn University to get his PhD in English literature. So we moved down there. And um, I had started um, while he was getting his master's degree. My first job out of college was for the Nashville Chamber of Commerce doing PR. So that was during the time that the Titans were starting to come. Um, I remember vividly they were building Bridgestone Arena and they, at the same time, they were building the Cumberland. Mm. You know, that the, mm-hmm. it was one of the first new apartment complexes downtown. There was not, you know, you may think, oh, I bet that was so cool to work in downtown Nashville. There was nothing to do after work in Nashville 
1998. Um, it was kind of sketch. So we would get in our cars and we would drive back to our respective places um, where we lived. And they were building the Cumberland and they were topping it out. And I remember standing there. The chamber at the time was in the LNC Tower. And I was in the alleyway and I could look down the alley and see the Cumberland. And the top penthouse was for um, Barry. What is He's one of the owners or the general manager of the Predators at the time. Uh-oh. And um, he was on our chamber board. I can't remember. I think his first name was Barry. Anyway, um, and people were saying, who is going to want to live in downtown Nashville? I mean, it's the same conversation again. We er, come around back to Jack. Who is going to want to live in Midtown Jackson? Who is going to want to live in downtown Jackson? That conversation was taking place in Nashville. And I just remember looking up there and they were like, they're building his penthouse, da, 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 da. So that was the time I was there. The downtown corporation was really getting going um, in Nashville. The Nashville Sports Council was picking up. And so it was a really exciting time to be a part of what was the basis for what is now Nashville. I'm not signing myself any kind of It's all because of you. No, no, you just said it. You just, but no. Without saying it. So Gen Z <laughs> yeah, is single-handedly right. responsible no, no, for no, what no. Nashville has become. I, I wrote Good press, or bad. No, I wrote press releases. and That's um, all it took. Maybe it was just one press release that you wrote was. that that's what did it. Like that <laughs> caught fire. I do remember, this is a sidebar conversation, which I'm sure we'll have a lot of, but um, it was during the um, Bush-Gore um, campaign. And Al Gore had announced that he was moving his campaign headquarters to Nashville. And the collective Beltway, et cetera, were just agog to use a phrase out of the Music Man musical. That was a line in there. Anyway, I don't normally use that word. In agog? Conversation. Agog, yeah. No, I'm glad you did. Okay. We're just, circ- we're just we're, bringing we're, everything we're- back. <laughs> All right, this is going to be a circular conversation. It, is, it really is. If you know way. me, this is so me. Um, and so I got a call from one of the national media outlets, and they wanted to, basically their attitude was, what in the world are these people from Washington going to do in Nashville? And their big question to me was, where's the nearest Starbucks? And at that time, there was one Starbucks in Nashville. It was near um, one of the hospitals. And there were no other Starbucks. And so they were just like, what are they going to do? There's not any Starbucks in Nashville. And I thought, well, I I mean, it's coffee. They can get a cup of coffee from a lot of different places. There's a lot of places that have coffee in in Nashville. I mean, did you not tell them there's a Jack's Barbecue that they could have gone to? Exactly. A Goo Goo Cluster Museum? It wasn't well. there. It wasn't there then. No, oh, none of that okay. was there. Gabe. The Goo Goo Cluster Museum wasn't no, there? No, no. Yeah, that's no. right. This is the Stone was, Ages of Nashville. It was. So we moved from Nashville to Auburn. Well, we actually moved to Opelika, which is their sister city. Mm-hmm. It's right next to it. And because of my work at the Nashville Chamber, I was able to parlay that into a job um, in the mayor's office in the city of Opelika doing economic development. So we lived there for five years, and I got totally enmeshed in the world of economic and community development. Wow. And then from there to Jackson. Yes. And then my husband got his first job at Freed Hardeman University teaching English, and we moved to Jackson. Okay. I 18 wanna... years ago. 18 years. Quick math. 2003. 2005. Five. 18. Yes. Okay. You're right. Man. 
math was not my strong suit. So let's back up in the conversation a little bit. This is one of those sidebars that we could have. I'm just going to ask you real quick and give me a one word answer. Oh gosh. Is Nashville, yes or no, better in 2001 or 2023? I, I would say it's better now. Okay. And some people, some people say Nashville has kind of jumped the shark, meaning it's just gotten, mm. it's too much. It's gotten too much. I think that based on the conversations and the strategic plans that we were implementing at the chamber at the time, it is what we planned it to be. I mean, to a large extent. It's the second time you're taking credit for well, the growth of we, Nashville. I said we. You did. I know. You did. I said I. Just no, drop I was the doing the pretense, global. Jency. Just the, say I. No, like when no, I was no, no, sketching no. out my vision for Nashville <laughs> in 2001, this I, is what I thought it would I look like. I said we is so. in the chamber. I, I literally wrote press releases and newsletter articles and answered silly questions from media across the country about coffee. So well. This this can bring us quickly. Well, I don't want I don't want to I don't want to jump too far ahead. Okay, okay. so you moved to, you moved to to Jackson in two thousand eight. No, two two thousand five. Two thousand five. See, I've gotten you confused. <laughs> I know. I've gotten you messed up. Yeah. In your mouth. So two thousand five, and, and did you go into any kind of economic? No. Development planning here. Or? I decided to be a mom. Okay, because I well, that's a full time. I had I know job. Um, I had had our son um, in 2004, and that last year I was in the middle of a lot of big um, industrial projects that I had to stay with through the last year there. So um, I wanted to take time and be the chief executive of my home. Yeah. And did you, and how long did you do that? Mm, a couple years, I guess. Um, I mean, I did a few little things in there, but the next thing I did was to go into business with two friends that I had met in Jackson um, in a small business that's still in existence to this day. What is it? Um, it was, it is called TSS industrial packaging. Okay. Um, Michelle Boyd, a lot of people know her. She grew up here. Her kids grew up here. Um, she had been in industrial thread sales. What is that? Well, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, you mean like thread, like like yeah. needle and sewing thread? thread? Sewing thread. So industrial sewing thread. Um, have you ever opened a bag of something that you had to pull a piece of thread out of the top of? Yes, my cat food bag every yes. time it gets delivered. From so Chewy. that's probably sold by Michelle. really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow and so she had done that for a very very long time and was super successful and then she got laid off by the supplier that she worked for and being a very strong successful woman she said okay you don't want me selling for you i'm going to go to your competitor and tell them that i'm going to start my own company and if you'll sell if you'll allow me to sell your product drop ship it to these customers then let's be in business and so myself and Jessica Pruitt who is an attorney with Bird and Bird now I mean she was an attorney at the time um, we started this business and TSS stood for three silly sisters did or, did you watch the office uh, yeah this sounds like the Michael Scott paper yeah. company is it I mean yeah. is it this, <laughs> I was like wait this yes. is from but she and Michelle's the driving force I, I can't claim a lot of credit for that um, did the sales and she was able to pick up all of her former customers um, with this new company and we did a million our first year in sales now the margins on thread are not high 
but we did um, win the Emerging Business of the Year Award from the Chamber. Wow. Or after our first Well, year. I didn't even know that was a business until I, five minutes ago. <laughs> Industrial threat. Was yeah, and, like, and I know she does a lot more now. It's still in business, and she's very successful, and it's really because of her relationships that that company went off. But I did the marketing and the newsletter, and we really tried to differentiate ourselves by being a woman-owned business mm -hmm. That our newsletters were sent on pink paper. And these are men in factories that are getting this. This was before we did an email newsletter too, but we did, we mailed one and it was on pink paper and we had recipes and tips for the home. And then we also had information about our industrial sewing thread because we recognized that people were buying from Michelle because they liked her. So how do you translate her into a brand? And so we took that and we went with it because they knew that she loved to cook and she loved her family. So we put pictures of her family and we put recipes in there and all the things that made her so successful. We put that into our brand and it was very successful. And so a couple of years after that, I sold back out to them and Jesse's a couple of years later, sold her portion back and Michelle's got a bunch of staff and people and she's doing really well and it's awesome. And I'm not a salesperson. I'm just a marketing newsletter, you know, other thing person. Well, that's another good transition too, because you said I'm not a salesperson, but because I, I had a very brief stint in PR work, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would consider my job in Haywood County as, as PR, as their communications, uh, chief communications officer, right? That's such a fancy title for, for just me being the communications person for the school district. Sure. And I did feel like, because I've always said I'm not a salesman, but then when I got put in that role, I was like, oh man, this feels like I am, I'm, I'm selling. Because in a way, I think I was selling something. Well, sure. Yes, you um, are. And I think that was to... I think my personality got in the way of me doing that job as well as I could have because I was always thinking, oh, but then if I put this really good foot forward, then I also knew over here, well, it's not that I'm not telling the whole story, but then there are other things that everybody's like knows that I'm not saying <laughs> that are wrong. Shoot. Sorry, I knocked my, my earphones out. But they, I, I knew they were wrong or they knew that I was not telling the whole story. So I felt like I needed to like acknowledge those things yeah. and I wasn't great at it. I mean, it's, it's persuasion at the end of the day. Are you persuading somebody to buy? And at the fundamental level, you, if you're not selling a product, you're selling an idea, you're selling a concept, you're selling an organization, you're selling their benefits, their services, those sorts of things. But I guess from this, when I say sales, I think more a product, something mm -hmm. physical. And I, I don't consider myself that. But I like to be a seller of ideas and thoughts and, and um, missions and visions and stuff like that. And I like the way that you guys presented your industrial thread, right? Because it is it it, it was far more than a product from what it sounds like. It was it was a brand. It was personal because who what other industrial thread company is going to send a recipe with exactly their new right so exactly. i think i like the idea i like the way you said that like you, you you're selling ideas you're not selling a product right and and i let the the sales experts sell the actual product and know the 
the skeins and the weight of the thread and all of that kind of stuff, you know, to be able to present that to new businesses and companies, whereas I could focus on her personality, the personality that she wanted to build for the company and try to communicate that to the end user. Yeah. And, and so now I do think I want to jump ahead a little bit and I, and I, I want to talk about the work that you're doing currently mm-hmm. with rap, because I feel like in, in, in some ways that my job when I worked in Haywood County for the school system, I'm not saying it mirrors what you're doing for rap, but it does seem to be closer to that than it was when you're selling a product for Absolutely. something, right? Yes. Because what you're doing is you're trying to communicate the message of your organization and the good things that this organization mm-hmm. does and the goods and the services that that organization provides and how it can help mm-hmm. people in the community. So first of all, let's just start with RAP. Let's start with that acronym. Yes. All right. What does, what does RAP stand for? RAP stands for the women's and men's. So we represent that by W-O slash M-E-N, Resource and Rape Assistance Program. And how long has RAP been around West Tennessee? So RAP was started in 1975 by a group of ladies in Madison County that wanted to start a rape crisis line, a volunteer-led rape crisis line for the community and I think if you think back to 1975 which I can't because I was not yet born but shortly thereafter (laughs) um, that that period of time was a a big time for a movement for women to be acknowledging you know their struggles and their challenges voting and you know all of kind of things like that so for some women in Madison County to step forward and say hey you know, we need support and resources for women who have experienced sexual assault, rape, what have you, is very progressive, in my opinion. Um, I think it was called the Jackson Rape Assistance Program, and it eventually changed to the Women's Resource and Rape Assistance Program. And and as everything does, I feel like as you progress in society, there are a lot of other things that start to fall under that umbrella. Yes. Right. So what started out initially as a way to address or help women who have been victims of sexual assault or rape. Yes. Did this stretch now into women who were victims or women or men who Mm -hmm. were victims of abuse? Yes, it did. Um, Several years in the 80s, it expanded to be what they call a dual SADV agency. So they expanded to include domestic violence, particularly intimate partner violence, which means that it's something that happens to between two people that have an intimate relationship, dating, used to date, married, used to be married, um, that sort of thing. So expanded into that um, and was a dual agency for a very long time. And we still are. But in January 2023, we added another program. So we are now the state's official um, practice partner agency for the relative caregiver program in West Tennessee. That expanded our footprint from 19 West Tennessee counties, which was everything from river to river except for Shelby and Fayette County, to now 20 counties for the relative caregiver program. And what that program does is it tries to prevent children from entering the foster care system by supporting relatives that can then care for those children in their home. By support, do you you mean like financially supporting? Yes, financially. There's some financial. um, You can be a part of the relative caregiver program without qualifying for financial 
incentives through the program. So there's support groups, there's respite activities. So they have fun activities for the whole family and all the families that are in the program to get together. They've gone to the um, safari park. They had a party at the bowling alley, you know, and of course this happens in other places throughout West Tennessee that we, that we support. It's not like all these events happen in Jackson, uh, Madison County. And um, then for some people they qualify, they can receive um, $16.88 per child per day financial assistance plus other emergency financial assistance that may be necessary to continue to keep the home safe and livable for the family. Because a lot of times when I'm assuming that when you all have to support a man or woman who is a victim of domestic violence or intimate partner um, violence, then the child... Mm-hmm. is displaced for lack of a better word maybe not displaced but needs to go needs to have another somewhere um, else to stay possibly well that that's another uh program that rap has so we actually piloted a program in tennessee that is a dcs liaison program and now it has been moved throughout the state so we have a liaison with dcs and their goal is to try to support the um, non-offending parent to keep um, to have the children stay safe and with them. There's something called the safe and together model. So to keep them safe and together with the non-offending parent, because what we had seen before is DCS may have blamed the non-offending parent for having stayed in a relationship that there was abuse and, and where their abuse was not directly on the children, but the children were witness to the abuse. If, if DCS removed every child from every home that had abuse, you know, DCS would have custody of a, a lot, a lot of children. So there are ways to intervene and to support that family, to support to keep them together. Or if for that or other reasons the children have been removed from the home, we can work toward reconciliation with the family to help that parent um, regain custody of those children um, by meeting with us and talking about the cycle of violence and the impact of violence on the children and that sort of thing. And then if those children um, have been removed from the home, and of course the relative caregiver program doesn't have anything, um, there's no stipulation that the children were removed because of domestic violence or anything. It's just the children are been are have been removed from the home then we can support those families that are trying to keep those children in a loving and safe environment versus in state custody so in the media packet you sent me it is loaded with a lot of a lot of stats yes right so i i do want to sort of walk through some of those yep and i want to talk about because you know the way we define certain words or there are there there are words that I think sometimes have ambiguous meanings. Mm-hmm. And in this particular context, I think the word abuse, mm-hmm. right, is a word that sometimes, maybe not can be misunderstood, but the word abuse to one person may mean something different to mm-hmm. someone else. So I want to talk through that word a little bit at first, because I think when we think of abuse, what immediately comes to mind is physical abuse, where you see bruises, you mm-hmm. see phys- you see evidence of violence on someone's person. Mm-hmm. What are other types of abuse that you all s- handle mm-hmm. at RAP? So there's um, emotional abuse, there's verbal abuse, 
Um, there's isolation, so it's keeping that person away from their support networks and friends and family. Um, that could mean that they move you to another community where you don't have any support mm-hmm. system. It could be things like, well, and and let me just stop here to say, I may say she, but but that's just because it's more common. And just let's just say for the ease of talking, I'm not going to say she, he. Right. You know, that sort of thing. But just know that that I have personally supported men um, in this. Um, so just get that out of the way. But um, kind of like, well, baby, if you if you really love me, you would stay with me tonight and hang out with me. Why are you wanting to go out with your friends? Why, why are you calling your mama all the time? Why are you, you know, things that may seem like at first like, oh, he really wants to be around me. Or and again, we've talked about this. especially this kind of behavior you can see a lot with with um, females Um, so there may be that isolation there could be financial abuse where you have to turn over your check every time you get it to your other to the other person and they buy whatever they want with it or keep it from you or give you a um, allowance or something like that Um, it could be um, see financial um, it could be intimidation Hmm. And threats, um, threat of using violence. So if if I want you to do something, no matter what that thing is, then my arsenal of um, manipulative tactics may not ever have to get to physical violence to get you to do what I want you to do. And so it could be that somebody is in a relationship that is experiencing a lot of these other kind of abusive behaviors and they've never physically experience physical behaviors but it could be down the road when those things stop working and being effective that that things ramp up and that cycle could be a long time it could never occur because you know i don't know about you but when i was a child my mother just had to give me the look Mm -hmm. to get me Mm -hmm. to do now my brother came along and the look didn't work on him you know so, again, it's kind of that same thing. I mean, for some people, just a, a kind of a disapproving look might might equal compliance, whereas with other people, it might be a whipping. Needs to accept, beating, like, yes, escalate whatever. a little bit. Yes. Um, you talked before we started recording um, about the cycle mm-hmm. of abuse, and I want you to, to talk about that a little bit. For anybody who's listening who may, because I do feel like there are people who are probably in abusive situations mm-hmm. that may not realize that the situations are abusive because that's just normal to them. Mm-hmm. And so you, you sort of mentioned a cycle or, or something that happens every time an abuser abuses. It's this, do you right. remember? Yes. Okay. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 10 minutes ago we were talking before we started recording. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember. Thank you. Um, so there's typically a cycle. There'll be um, potentially like a building up phase um, or, or just let's just say a normal, you know, normal, normal life. Then um, there's like a walking on eggshells phase where something happens and you kind of think, "Ooh, I better I better be careful here. I better not say this or do this or I better have, you know, the special meal cooked because that mm. could set him or her off or whatever it may be. And so that that phase. And again, these phases can go quickly. Or they can take, there can be a lot of time between these phases. 
And then so there's an escalation and there's a buildup. Then there's kind of the moment, whether that's physical violence or the, the yelling, the emotional abuse. And then after that, you have the apology that I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do that again. I had a really bad day at work. You know, I'm really under a lot of stress or I'm not feeling well. I'm sick. You know, I'm, I'm never, 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 never going to do that again. And then you'll have the honeymoon phase that's like flowers and, you know, pro- pro- professions of love and all of this kind of stuff. And that phase feels really, really good. And so what people... Um, and just in talking to a lot of survivors is they chase that honeymoon mm. phase. They chase it and chase it. And they hold that honeymoon phase up as to that's really who this person is. The honeymoon phase is really them. All this other stuff is just situational. So I'm going to continue in this relationship because I want that honeymoon phase to stay and to be the norm and really when it's and, and and domestic violence is a cycle it's a pattern it's not a one-off thing we've all not been our best selves mm-hmm. in a relationship that's not what this is this is a cycle and a pattern so you're going to see this happen over and over and it could take a year for this cycle it could be six months it could be a month it could be a week it could be every day and we've met with people where that's every day and to go back to your initial comment that most of the time with abuse, we think physical. I have multiple people that I've um, met with um, that never experienced physical abuse. I have had at least three people I can think of tell me, I wish he had just hit me mm. because they were experiencing the verbal and the psychological abuse and the isolation and all of that. And they said, because in their mind, they felt like at least once that release was had, it would be over, you know, in their mind, instead of this relentless every single day belittling, talking down to, you know, all of this sort of thing. Do you think people who are living in that cycle of verbal and emotional abuse, if they've never experienced physical abuse in some way in their mind, and I'm, I'm, I'm this is maybe a hard question because I'm asking mm. you to like try to get in the head of someone else. Right. Do you think in their mind they're like, well, he hasn't hit me or she hasn't hit me. So maybe mm. I'm maybe this isn't abuse. Maybe this is just a difficult person right. to live with. Right. Yeah, and the I way mean, society may look at that too, because mm-hmm. how do you how do you quote unquote prove that? Right. And we talked about that too. I think that that ex- what both things you said can be can be true. Um, there are plenty of people that maybe that was not their experiencing experience growing up, so they didn't live in a family where there was a verbal abuse and emotional abuse. So it definitely raises a big red flag to them because hey, this is not what I'm used to. Maybe you grew up in a family where this is the norm, so it just seems like that's love to you, um, and and you don't recognize that it's not. Um, beneficial to you it's not helping you reach your goals and be your best self that it's actually taking more from you than it's giving to you Um, but like you said it can be incredibly difficult if you look at this from a legal justice system standpoint when there's not physical abuse um, to prove that in a court of law Um, that doesn't mean that you can't and that doesn't mean that that people haven't been successful in that and again, in terms of RAP and our assistance, going forward and um, 
disclosing to police and making police reports has nothing to do with our support. We aren't there to support you and say you have to leave a relationship. That's not our role. It's not our life. We don't live in your shoes, in your home. Um, We're not going to tell you to leave. We're going to give you information and support you. And if you said, you know, Gen Z, um, I love him. I just want him to stop doing this. Then if that's where you are right now, then that's where we're going to be. And um, that's where we're going to start from. And we'll just talk about how you can help, um, you know, your own self with being, you know, mindfulness and um thinking about your options and okay so let's think about your safety in these situations and what if this happens what might you do and what if this happens what might you do and that sort of thing and just basically listening without judgment Mm. in those situations is some of those powerful things and normalizing their experience and validating what they've gone through can be very empowering to people and then if they choose you know, down the road to do something different, we're there to help them. But if they continue to want to stay in that relationship and um, work on themselves, then that's fine too. Because again, it's their life. And I can't tell you, Gabe Hart, what to do with your mm-hmm. life any more than you can tell me what to do with my life. So you're, 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 y'all are there for support initially, right? Like you're just there as a support system. If they, if someone comes to you and says, this is my situation, mm-hmm what do I do? And then you, you guys are there to support them. Is that the best way to, to, to describe um, it? that? If, if you want to say support, um, we definitely use that word, but there are a lot of other resources we can bring to the table. If somebody chooses to use them, we can help people file orders of protection. If they choose to do that, we can do court accompaniment. Um, so for example, at the safe hope center in Jackson on, um, Lambeth and Roland. It's on Roland at the corner there in our, our neighborhood mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. from healthcare pharmacy. So Jackson Police Department um, Domestic and Sexual Violence Investigation Unit is located there. Captain Danielle Jones, mm-hmm. we you know, she's also our neighbor. Um, she's there. They you can talk to an investigator. Um, you can also talk to the um, assistant district attorney. Uh, Josh Dugan for um, domestic cases. His office is there and he's got a victim's witness coordinator. You can um, talk to RAP if you choose to do that. Um, West Tennessee Legal Services has an office space there um, that can meet with people. So you may have, you may want to explore your legal options. Um, You may want to get a divorce. You may want to Um, consider some custody issues that may arise out of what's going on you may want to flee and if you need to flee and you're scared for your safety we have options there we operate two safe homes in west tennessee and those are houses and neighborhoods that if you drove past them you wouldn't know what's going on inside the home so they're nice home environments for people to stay while we assess their safety continue to assess their safety and try to get them into their own place we have programs that can help people get into their own home um, certain qualifications there. Um, we can do hospital accompaniment. So if you um, were sexually assaulted, when you are, when someone is sexually assaulted and they go to the hospital um, and they want a sexual assault exam, then they call RAP. The hospital calls RAP and we have our sexual assault advocates drive, even if it's two o'clock in the morning to Jackson General to be there to talk to them Um, If they want to talk to us to just say, hey, I'm here if you need support, you know, I'm I'm here for that. 
So there's just a lot of advocacy, helping them to find their voice, to use their voice, to know their choices, and to make their decisions for their own best interest. I'm going to read through some of these stats that that are on this um, packet that you sent. Um, And then I want to maybe not personalize it, but I want to dig into them in in real life scenarios. Mm -hmm. Maybe some things that rap has, has seen, or I want to walk through the process of what that looks like when Mm -hmm. someone comes, comes to you all. Sure. Okay. This is on average one in three women and one in four men in the U S will experience rape, physical violence and or stalking by an intimate partner. And that, that last word or the verb in their stalking is interesting to me, mm-hmm. right? Because I think everybody knows, well, right, physical violence, like, oh man, that's clearly signs of abuse. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about stalking a little bit. Do you, is that something that you all see a lot? And what does that look like? So I, I think that when, when we think stalking, um, it's, it's kind of like violence. We think physical violence, stalking, you think like creeping, if, if you could see, I don't know who's watching the video, but I'm doing this creepy. <laughs> I'm looking at myself like this. Creep, 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 you know, with the I'm hands tree, up, you my, know, yes. like looking at a peeping Tom <laughs> kind of thing. Um, certainly that is, can be part of it where you're physically monitoring somebody. You're happen to just show up where they are. Or if you work in a place, they come and frequent that place all the time. Um, but there's also, especially in relationships, um, digital stalking Mm -hmm. and that is so normalized now. I, you know, I've got find my phone with my whole family, you know, I mean, with my son and my husband and my son's devices and my watch and my other, you know, where I can look and see where they are at any time. Um, some families have life 360, you know, there are other apps that can be hidden on a phone that can notify somebody's location of, for nefarious purposes. You can hide an air tag in somebody's wheel well or mm-hmm. wherever it may be. So the digital stalking and the location, I mean, if you post things to social media, if you post a picture, there's metadata there that can say where you are. So the increase in digital stalking is probably, and I, I don't know this for a statistic, but when I talk to a lot of young men and um, I would include you in that, um, younger, young, younger professionals or whatnot, um, you know, being to where you're, you're being texted all the time. Where are you? Why aren't you here? You know, why didn't you answer my text? I texted you 10 minutes ago. You know, what are you doing? You know, who are you with? Who are you talking to? Or I see on Snapchat that you were at, you know, Wings Express. Why are you there? Who's there? You know, that kind of thing, because we can look and see where our friends are. And we use these social media outlets to find um, for for fun to see where, you know, you check in at play. I mean, I check in at every Sunday at church because working we the soundboard. Well, working the video board. That's right. Because at church, they say everybody check in at church because X number of check ins and this organization will donate a book to a kid in Africa or something. Every every month, there's a different like um, a, a benefit to some group of people somewhere for checking in, which is why I do it. I don't normally just check in at church, just be like, look at me, Jesus, I'm here. <laughs> it's just a visual record just to yeah. make sure. And they're like, take a picture and tag your location. So if you follow me on Facebook, you know where I am on Sunday morning and I take a picture because that's what they're telling me. That 
from the pulpit. Now, if the preacher's telling me to take a picture, better post, do it. I better do it. So it's like a tie. But I mean, and all I mean, and I know we're being light about this, and it's a very serious topic. But sometimes you have to find some element of lightheartedness in a very serious topic. But that stalking behavior. Um, and, and that can be really hard to prove, too, because there's also all these apps that you can call somebody from and mask your number or you can make it look like somebody else's number. Or, I mean, we get you get spoof calls oh, all the time about your time. car warranty. And I just bought a car warranty. So now I'm getting even more car warranty calls. Um, but you it's hard to prove in a court of law if you know that your abuser is you've got an order of protection and they're not supposed to contact you and you're getting texts that are from them that you know are from them that they're spelling things the same way that they're doing all, but they're sending it through a text now app well you can't you know could you could you prove that yes but it's kind of like the real world versus what we see on tv in terms of policing they're not going to employ the fbi to run some kind of trace and do some kind of there's no you know, funny girl with the quirky clothes, you know, tapping her fingers. Somebody's watching Criminal Minds. Yes. I see. Um, <laughs> in my part time <laughs> when I'm not watching mowing videos. Your mowing videos. Yeah. Um, that is um, going to track that down unless the person texted you and said, um, I'm going to kill you. You know, they're, they're not going to go through this forensic process because you had an order of protection against somebody and they texted you just where are you da 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 blah 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 um in violation of that order of protection from a text now number so there's just a lot of ways or if you're in kroger and you know that your abuser never uses that kroger and this is the kroger closest to where you're living and you just happen to see them at the end of the aisle you know they're probably not there because they're going krogering but how do you prove that in court that they were there and not just happened to be there? And so you have to become your own private eye almost to prove stalking by taking, you know, you're not supposed to use your phone while you're driving and take videos and pictures of people. But you might have to if you're being followed, you know, by this person. But if you're going down 45 how are you going to say, well, he was behind me or she was behind me when I was driving down, a, you know, the bypass? Well, a lot of people drive down the bypass. But if you're turning and making turns and this and that and they're following you, but you're supposed to drive and keep your cool and hold your phone up and record something and all this. But, I, you know, it's not hopeless. And I don't want to try to say it's hopeless. But that's why we're here as rap to step in and hold your hand and to give you those strategies and to walk you through and help you be safe and help you make informed choices and decisions about maybe not going to the Kroger that's normally by your home and not doing these things. But again, it's it's terrible that a person has to disrupt their whole daily life because somebody else will not be a grown-up and yeah, do what they should do. and leave them alone, right. And that's what I was going to ask to, in which you, you did a great job of explaining that. Um, what types of ab abuse do you all see the most? I don't know if that's even the right way to ask that question, but the majority of, of men and women that you mm -hmm. serve, is, is there, is it more emotional? Is it more physical? I, I 
don't I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, we do track that. Um, I don't know if physical is the number one that we see. I think particularly in my my experience um, in working with RAP was um, when working with participants. We call them participants because they choose to participate in our program. Okay. So when I say participants, that's mm-hmm. what I mean. Um, was at the Safe Hope Center, and a lot of people that come through the Safe Hope Center may have come through because there was an incident that was reported to police, whether they reported it or not. And so a lot of times you are seeing physical violence there, but that was not the case with everyone because a lot of people, you know, will call our hotline and they'll just want to come in and speak to us and physical violence may not be a part of their experience. So I don't, I can't really say exactly if there was overabundance of physical violence at least when we're talking about the domestic violence side of it. Um, but um, one of the things that I mentioned to you was the prevalence of strangulation. Mm-hmm. Um, every day, a lot of us get this report um, from the police department that shows what calls came in that were domestic or sexual related, sexual violence related. And I would read those every morning and I would see strangulation, choking, choking, strangulation, strangulation, strangulation. And I thought, what is going on? And I had um, Sarah Jones, um, who is definitely like the criminal minds behind the computer guru of the Jackson Police Department, ran me some numbers on the number of reported strangulations. And it basically worked out to um, over 150 reports per year to Jackson Police Department of strangulation. That's about every basically every other day you're going to see one. And then I thought, wow. And I was doing a lot of reading on the dangers of strangulation and um, it just, the, the statistic that you're 800% more likely to be a victim of homicide than the general population. If you've been strangled one time was just shocking to me. So say that again, you're eight, eight, 800% more likely to be murdered by that partner if you've been strangled one time than if you have not been strangled 800% now you're like 700% more likely to be the victim of attempted homicide by that person after one strangulation but if we say let's just say there's 150 people that reported being choked slash strangled um, per year in Jackson then that's 150 people that are walking around at a 800% more risk for being murdered. Wow. I'm, I'm sort of stuck. I'm not stuck. I'm thinking in my head. I'm trying to think of the correlation between that. Like, is, is there something about power? Is there something instinctual when someone takes their hand and goes for the throat mm-hmm. or the neck of someone? To use that as some type of physical control yeah. of like, I literally have yes. your life in my hand mm-hmm. and you better, you yeah. better do whatever I need you to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you watch any kind, I mean, I'm a big true crime watcher as well beyond mowing videos. Um, and when people are strangled um even when they're talking about cases they said this has got to be personal Mm. you know some kind of anger some kind of very very rage behind this 
But what I also learned is that it takes more pressure per pound, per inch, per square inch to open a can of Coke than it does to strangle somebody. Wait, so it, it's easy. It's, it's harder. It, it's easier to it's harder to open a can of Coke than, than it is someone. to choke somebody. Yeah. Never would have thought that. No, I didn't either. And that's when when I was looking at all this information, I said, we've got to do something, you know. And so we started a strangulation awareness campaign last October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we partnered with the emergency department at the hospital. Um, Dr. Revel, who is their mm-hmm. chief ER physician, gave he and then um, one of the physicians at the UT Family Medical Center, they helped me um, review this strangulation information piece that I put together and made sure it's medically accurate because we wanted to give people the information, the statistics, but also what to look for, you know, when should you go to the emergency room? And then because you're only going to have um, bruises and stuff in 50% of the cases, um, there are a list of symptoms that you should be able to track to show that this was an outcome of this strangulation. And that could be used in a positive way for yourself in court because you can then go to you know, the DA's office and say, yeah, there were no, you know, they, there, there were no visible bruises, but I experienced, you know, lightheadedness, um, trouble speaking, trouble swallowing, da, 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 da. And if you have tracked it and marked it on this information piece, that can be used in court. So it was kind of this collaborative thing that um, came about from that. But in talking to other police departments, not just Jackson, um, they were like, yeah, we see that all the time. I mean, it's, it's, just the same high numbers in all the places around here and it can get kind of um you know people all the mma stuff i mean people don't look don't think choking somebody out you know that's just a move that you do you know but you don't realize the dangerousness of it something that that you said it just stuck with me just now like i can't imagine having to track the times that I was assaulted or strangled. Like, Mm -hmm. and I know that that's for proof And this, but that just adds a whole other layer of complexity to what a victim has to experience. Mm -hmm. Like it's bad enough that they're experiencing the abuse, but just in my head, I'm imagining like just checking, like here's some things, this, Mm -hmm. this happened on this date. I experienced this and just having to document it just Mm -hmm. so somebody would believe you. Exactly. Which is where we start by believing it rap and you're going to find no judgment starting by believing our services are free and they're confidential. So if Gabe, if you had ever come to us at RAP, I would never, ever, 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 ever mention that to any person unless you said, Gen C, I need you to call um, so-and-so on my behalf and help advocate for me. And I would get you to sign a piece of paper that said that I had permission to talk to this person about this one thing. Do you find most of of the victims men and women want their story out there or does it just depend on whatever their situation is um i think it depends upon where they are in their healing process um there are plenty of people that don't want anybody to know what's happened and certainly shame and silence can characterize both domestic violence and sexual assault and as people go through their healing journey and they're able to um kind of place that experience in the time that it occurred and not carry that with them 
you know, constantly is a burden of them every day, then they feel more in control of their life. They feel more powerful and that that can then for some transition into them wanting to tell their story. And we have people at our annual fundraiser every year that tell their stories that want to tell their stories. And there's a lot of other people that would like to tell their story. And you and I were talking about, you know, a rap podcast where survivors could tell their story and not be videoed, you know, wouldn't have to have the, the, the live video so that it could just be their voice. They could be anonymous and they could tell their stories because this happens to every person, no matter their race, socioeconomic level, you know, religion, sex, sexual orientation. I mean, one in three women and one in four men. It happens. And I want to talk about this, too, because it does you you want to acknowledge that it does happen to men and women. But the stats there sort of bear it out. It happens more frequently to women. Mm -hmm. And I do want to talk about that because I think it's important to talk about, Um, you know, without having to go into the whole history of women's suffrage. We know that this hasn't been an equitable gender, a, a gender equitable nation. Right. Uh, um, for a long time, um, up until just a generation or so ago, women pretty much stayed home if they were married. They didn't they didn't have their own career. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, it's not like men and women have equitable pay a lot of times for certain jobs. So and in this economy, a two household income or a double income in a household is almost necessary. Yeah. That being said, if a woman is in an abusive situation with her domestic partner and that domestic partner may bring in the, the most money out of the partnership. Um, I think there's an idea out there of people who have never been in that situation are like, well, why don't you just leave? Let's talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit because mm-hmm. what are other than all right, beyond the emotional attachment they have to their partner, because let's, let, let's be frank. Sure. If it's an intimate relationship, there is some love for that person or there was at one time. Right. So that's got to be dealt with. But then you have the financial implications mm-hmm. of just leaving and trying to figure that out on your own. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing if you're an adult and you don't have any kids, but I'm sure in a lot of cases, in these mm-hmm. domestic intimate partnerships, there are children involved. Sure. And so leaving on your own and trying to figure out how you're going to make ends meet has to be a roadblock in that process of getting out of a relationship that is abusive. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about all of those things that a woman might face in that situation? I mean, uh, all of the above. And so when we talk about why do women stay I mean, again, uh, relationships are not always abusive all the time. Um, And there are reasons if you have children with that person or they're, um, you know, you you need their income to have a roof over your head. I mean, it's kind of like the devil, you know, I, I know what to expect here in this home and I have a home and I've got food versus the unknown of, you know, not having a place, you know, what it if I'm going to be sleeping in my car, maybe I don't even have a car. Maybe we have one car in our family. Where am I going to go? Maybe I was moved to West Tennessee from an, from where my family lived because he wanted me to be in this area away from my family. So I have no support. I have no family here. My family are in Florida. I have no way to get there. They don't have means or income. How am I going to get me and my kids there? Um, or I've never been allowed to work. I have no skills. I have no degree. 
So what am I going to do for work? My kids are young. I can't afford daycare. You know, I can't afford rent. I mean, you and I talked about this. We, we both live in Midtown and we both agreed that if we were to put our houses on the market today, we could not afford to buy our houses back. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and so the reality is how, if you have, um, a, you know, $15 an hour job, um, are you going to be able to make enough to support yourself, much less yourself and children on your own, pay eight, nine, $900,000 a month for rent. Maybe you don't have a vehicle. You got to pay for daycare, you know, all of these kind of things that you have to figure out and you have to figure it out immediately. You know, when you decide to leave, you know, yes, we can help you plan in advance, but for a lot of people, they need to get away right then and there. And and that's where we do have a safe home um, that has capacity for people that need to get away and figure out their safety. And we can try to get them into their own place. But for a lot of people where their abuser, um, it's dangerous for them to be in that situation. But maybe, you know, once they leave, he's not going to be coming after them trying to, you know, harm them anymore. You know, what do you do? And I looked at you a moment ago and I said, okay, Gabe, what do you have in your pockets? You know, what if I said right now you have to leave with only what's in your pockets. You cannot go back to your house and get anything. You can't show up at work because they may show up there and that could be dangerous for the students at the school and your coworkers and all of this. And you have to get away. And then, oh, by the way, you got to start over from scratch. And if somebody said that to me, I, I don't know that I would have the strength at this moment to do that. And so when you ask why people stay, you have to look at your own self and say, would I? Hmm. You know, I mean, would I be able to start over with absolutely nothing, even if that meant no place to lay my head? And something that crossed my mind is someone who I'm a single parent um, and I have, I have full custody of my daughter. I, I didn't always like I, I spent every other weekend in Dallas exercising parenting time there. I've been through the family court system three different times. Now we went to court once for, for uh, custody or, or parenting time a situation. The other two times it got worked out of mediation, but I know how much legal fees are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how does that's what my mind went to? Because right. if someone has kids and they're leaving an abusive yep. situation, just because they say it's abusive, even if it is, there's still a whole legal process that right. has to be worked out. So, is that something that you yeah. guys help with as well? We, we support people with referrals to agencies like West Tennessee Legal Services or Memphis Area Legal Services if you're closer to the Memphis area. Um, for they can assist um, in most cases, and, and of course their caseloads get big, um, custody disputes, divorces, um, you know, orders of protection, stuff like that. But again, let's say you're married to someone or in a relationship with someone that has a lot of means. Maybe their family has a lot of means, and so they hire, you know, pick which you would, I mean, Whatever attorney you know in town that you think is the best attorney in town, let's say they were able to hire them and you don't even have, you know, two nickels to rub together. That can be very intimidating um, to think about. So 
um, if, if you left, even if you had, um, you know, maybe uh, they would use the fact that you were homeless against mm-hmm. you, you know, all of these things. And again, that's why we're telling people you don't have to do this alone. You're not alone. We're here to stand beside you and offer resources, support, financial assistance if available, you know, all of these things so that we can help you get to where you want to be. And it's not going to be easy, but it's but people do it every day. And and that's what we have to helps us continue our work with people every day is because we have seen the other side for so many people. And that's where survivor stories and their voices can be so powerful to other people. I'm a big believer in, because I've seen it in my own life, in the process of personal evolution, meaning that sometimes things take a long time to work themselves out. Sometimes you can take two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it feels like it's one step forward and two steps back. But as long as there's constant forward momentum, no matter how slow it feels at times, there's still growth happening. How many, I shouldn't, I'm trying to think of a way to say this repeat customers do you guys see meaning Mm -hmm. they come to y'all for initial help but then they sort of get sucked back into that Mm -hmm. cycle and then you a few months later they come back Mm -hmm. and then fight like it's this back and forth back and forth until finally they're able to Mm -hmm. break out of that i mean it on average some it'll take someone seven times of leaving and coming back before they leave for good Mm -hmm. so we know that it's a process and so we're not you know, some I've, I've told on the first meeting with survivors, I've said, look, do not be embarrassed and not and feel like you can't talk to me anymore if you go back. That's not it's not for me to judge. I mean, it's statistically likely that, you know, you may go back, but that's why we're here to work and support you. I mean, whether you're there or whether you're not there. So, yeah, I mean, we see people that um, come through and they're just motivated to get away, but then, you know, they do go back. And again, we're not judging that and they'll come back to us, but we see plenty of people that make that decision to get to safety and they stay away and they're able to rebuild their lives. I mean, the ones that go back and forth are still, we see able to, you know, rebuild and, and to get where they want to be. Um, but it just depends. It's different for every person. And then that's, again, why we can't um, judge somebody's journey. It's kind of like when I think about, like, my own walk with, with the Lord. You know, you can't look at me and say and judge me right now because you don't know where my walk with the Lord is and how he's working on me. You know, so in the same way, you know, I can't look at another person and where they are in leaving or coming back and say, oh, well, you know, why are you doing that? You shouldn't have done that, you know, that sort of thing. So we always want to be a lifeline to people. Yeah, and I think you know, realistically speaking, something that is that emotionally intense doesn't just break all at one time. No. It, it's, it, it is that push and pull and back and forth until it, it's a working out of all of that stuff a lot of times, I'm sure. Um I want to shift the focus to wrap and what you all 
not necessarily need from the community, but how the community can support mm -hmm. this organization. And what I mean by support is that I don't necessarily just mean financially, mm -hmm. but like what are ways, and it could be financially, the sure. community can support this organization that does so much good work for people in the community. Right. I mean, the, the quickest things that people can do is to follow us on Facebook at, um, we're at rap West TN, but at, you know, facebook.com slash rap West TN. But if you just, <laughs> Everybody write this down. Write this w down. www.http <laughs> backslash colon. HTTPS colon. That's it. See, I don't even know. I, know. I just type stuff in I into know. Google when it comes up. <laughs> Follow us on Facebook. You can go to our website at rap, and that's W-R-A-P, raptn.org, and sign up for our newsletter so you get news. So those are like super quick, easy ways. And Does your newsletter have a recipe on it? I have not put a recipe uh -huh. in our newsletter yet. I I. I I've thought about, I actually thought about it. I mean. I did think about it. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram at Rat Believes. Those are quick, easy ways. But but the reason why I bring this up is if you can share our content. And, and sharing our content means that you're sharing an opportunity with people one in three, one in four for just domestic violence. I think it's one in three and one in six. Um, oh, that's stalking. Let's see, one in... One in five women and one, 70, one in 71 men have experienced rape or attempted rape. So you're looking at a lot of people that you know, you may not know that you know, but you know that could benefit from knowing about our support. So sharing our content and talking to other people and being that kind of person that someone will come to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And then you can say, hey, raps here, they can help you. Raps here, they can support you. Raps here, they can support your children. Or if you know somebody that um, is 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 caring for their grandkids, you can go. You know what? Rap has is the the relative caregiver program provider. You know, you're taking care of your grandkids or your nieces or your nephews or cousins or whatever. Call Rap; they can help you and support you and give you some resources as you're you're doing that. So that is a super great way because you're also communicating when you share our content, you're communicating to your networks that this is something that is a safe topic to talk to you about. Um, and, and breaking that stigma and breaking that silence is what is so invaluable to the work we do because the more people that know about us and the more people that know that they can come to us, the more we can help create those stable, safe, nurturing relationships, families, and communities in West Tennessee. So that's a great way. Um, another good way that you can support what we do is to, um, you know, if you want to make donations of items. So, for example, in the Jackson Madison County area at the Safe Hope Center, we take donations of hygiene items. Um, those are used so when people come and they're fleeing or they're relocating, you know, we can give them shampoo, conditioner, body wash, shaving stuff, toothbrush, toothpaste, all that kind of stuff for themselves and their children. So, you know, baby shampoo, stuff, diapers, 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 diapers. We need diapers. Um, those supplies are also sent to our safe home. So we've got, I think we have three families in our safe home in Jackson right now. So, you know, their children there, they need, you know, all of those kind of hygiene items. They may need underwear, socks, undershirts, clothing, school uniforms, you know, all of those kind of things, clothing. Um, if they're moving into their own place, they may need um, cleaning supplies. I mean, just think about having to start over. I mean, much less have a bed and all of that, but 
toilet paper, you know, Windex, toilet bowl cleaner, you know, all of those things that can really add up that you need in your home. So donation of items, you could do a drive among your friends or your church or your social group or whatever to collect those kind of diapers, hygiene items, stuff like that. We would be glad to take them. And that's very helpful to us because when we give those to someone, we get to count the value of that as a match toward our grants. Mm -hmm. You know, I told you Mm -hmm. earlier we um, are federal grants that we receive that are not not through taxpayer dollars. They're through victim of crime fees. So we have to match that 20%. So if if you, Gabe, gave me a $25 box of diapers that you got at um, Sands, I take those diapers. When I give that box of diapers to somebody, you are helping that person with those diapers. But we also get to say that box of diapers is worth $25. So we get to count that as an in-kind donation of $25. So that helps us match our grants. So that's like you gave us $25 and you gave uh, a person a box of diapers. Win-win. Yeah. Win-win-win. Now, that is very beneficial. The other big thing that's very beneficial is just unrestricted cash donations. Because, again, that money helps match our grants that allow us to provide that direct service to those survivors. And a lot of our grants that they have matched, but they also don't cover a lot of things that we really need to help somebody. For example, I told you we did not get any funding for emergency hotels. So we have a 24-7 crisis line. And so when people call us at 3 a.m. and they are in danger and they need to get away, we'd like to be able to put them in a safe place for the night. We did not get any funding for that. And we have to take that funding out of our little bit of financial, direct financial donations that people make that are not the in-kind donations so that we can put somebody in a hotel room. And that's at least a hundred something dollars a night, you know, for to do that. And so we've got 19 counties where we serve domestic and sexual violence survivors. We've got a lot of people that call our 24 seven helpline. In fact, last year we had 2,300 people that called our helpline last year. Um, So we have a need for those unrestricted dollars that allow us to then take that and say, okay, we need to put somebody in a hotel for one night, boom, we're going to put that that money toward that. Or we've got somebody that needs a bus ticket to get to their family in Florida that they need to get to safety, then we can do that. Or, you know, we need to do an awareness campaign so that people know about strangulation. We might need, you know, some of that money to, to get that information into the hands of people so they can read about it and know about it and know how dangerous it is or whatever it may be. So those direct cash donations are super, super helpful. And again, they go to helping the people that we serve. That like, this is something. So I've known about RAP just sort of, cause I've seen the acronym. I've even gone to the Dim and Pearls mm-hmm. fundraiser um, several years ago. And so I've, I've tangentially seen it around, but I've never really thought about the services it provides. And I'm sure that there are probably a lot of people like me mm-hmm. who we see those four letters and we right. know about denim and pearls and we see the pictures in VIP from the event or whatever, mm-hmm. but then that's as far as it goes. Right. So really diving into this mm-hmm. for me, even just for me personally has been extremely beneficial because I think it's, there's a difference in just sort of having an idea about what an organization does, but then really understanding Mm -hmm. and diving deep into what they do. So I want to finish this or close this out with, with something positive. And obviously I know because of confidentiality, you you can't give names or whatever, but can you share 
a positive, and I'm sure there are tons of them, but is there's one, and I know I'm putting you on the spot because we didn't talk about this beforehand, but is there a story that comes to mind from beginning to end where you're like, this is why we do what we do? Sure. Um, I'll use a story from someone that's now on our board, but I won't use his name um, because I know that, um, you know, I didn't ask him in advance, but um, I had the honor of um, meeting a a man um, much like yourself who um, was in an unhealthy relationship. It was not physical, but there were some other circumstances that, and and I think that with some men, um, their partner that is being manipulative and abusive will threaten to call the police on them. Mm. And that was the case in this. Well, they're not going to believe you. They're going to, I'm going to call and say that you did this to me and they're going to arrest you. You know, those again, threats and intimidation. And he was just very broken because he felt like he's a man. He should be able to handle his own business, you know. Um, But it really had broken him emotionally and spiritually. And he had a child and he was concerned about the child's um, kind of seeing this kind of unhealthy dynamic. And the child was not part of this relationship. But um, it that was not. His partner was not the mother of the child. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. And so it would really broken him. And so he went to his faith community leader and they said, you know, hey, you know, how about go to rap? And he was like, hadn't ever thought of that before. And so, again, grateful that that he got the um, I've got something in my eye. I keep touching my eye. I'm sorry. Um, so. He came to rap and I had the pleasure and the privilege and the honor of getting to meet with him. And he was very um, just dejected and felt like there was not, you know, he was embarrassed. And and a lot of people have that embarrassment. And so we started talking through things and he said, you know, it was during COVID. And so she had run up his credit card, run up his, you know, spent all his money, run up his bills and he needed to get away, but he had nothing to do it with. You know, he was in a business that was very finicky for the for the economy. And so he didn't have didn't know, like, um, have like a set paycheck that he could count on. And and he wanted to get away. And so we at the time, because we had some extra covid funding um, through this particular program that we still have the program, but there was just more funding in it. We're able to help him get into his own place. He and his son. Um, and it helped pay for several months of the, you know, the utility deposits, the rent deposits and the rent for several months while he was able to save some, a little bit of the money from his paycheck, even though it was, you know, kind of variable every week and, um, and really regain his own sense, um, of, of his self because he had also been isolated from doing the things Mm. that brought him joy you know, his hobbies. He had been isolated from being allowed to do that. And so he eventually started getting back into his hobbies, um, which brought him a lot of peace and comfort and joy. Um, his son, he and his son were able to kind of have that peace and that bonding together. Um, he was um, able to um, continue to excel in his job and increase his income and, um you know, didn't need that financial support anymore. And now he's giving back to the community by 
serving on our board and um he has sharon that's not a word sharon sharon he shared you were sharp coming in like you shared his i I, I mess up a really i I mess up a really touching story but he's he's shared his story at denim and pearls last year um and he is just a fantastic human being all the way around um just to see him from the first time he came in till you know even the last time i saw him i mean he's just totally personalities just shining through and and again i use that example because a lot of men don't see themselves in that term domestic violence but if you can think about a relationship where your money has been you know spent by someone else and they're belittling you and they're saying things in front of maybe a child and all of this and you just know that's not the best for your family and you need to get away. There's no shame in coming to an agency like RAP and helping us walk through and support you during this process. Yeah, and, I think, and I think you busted two common tropes of what people think domestic violence is. One, you know, it doesn't always happen to women. Like, not always, most, but, you know, there's right. a greater chance of it happening to a woman, but sometimes it, it happens to a man. And also, it doesn't always have to be physical. And that's the way we started out this conversation yep. about it. I think all full circle. I've I've never um, been a victim of domestic violence or domestic abuse or intimate partner abuse, but I can imagine that part of that process strips a person of sort of their essence of who they are and they, they lose sight of that. So I'm sure some of the recovery and getting out of that, like you said about in that story you just told is he just sort of, kind of built himself back up with the mm-hmm. support of, sure. of you all at RAP. But I'm sure that's part of the process, right? Yeah. The sort of like reclaiming right. yourself. Right. Reclaiming the things that brought you joy. Right. Man, you guys are doing such great work. Jency, thanks so much for thanks, sitting down Dave. and diving deep into this. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I appreciate you having me on here and giving me this opportunity to talk to people about the work that we do and how important it is for us to have community support because it really can change life. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, if you're listening live, I appreciate it. Um, this will drop for streaming on Friday on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, on down the list. And um, we thank you so much for listening. Jensi, once again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Gabe. Greatly appreciate it. Everybody have a great night.